It's Sunday, May 5th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Oil. It's been called the backbone of this nation's economy. And here in Turner Valley during the Second World War, this was the largest oil field in the British Empire. Across this province, the oil industry can be seen or felt almost everywhere. Nearly 4 billion barrels of oil a day are produced in Alberta, making Canada the fifth largest oil producer in the world. Tens of thousands of jobs depend on this industry. I don't think that you can talk to a person in town that isn't touched by the downturn and isn't bolstered when it booms. Rocky Mountain House, a small town in central Alberta that is driven by the energy sector. The degree to which the oil and gas industry supports local communities really it's very difficult to articulate because it, the reach is so broad. So we can't even really say how long-term or how um, deep the impact will be if the pipelines aren't built. Um, we just really, we're kind of sick of the politics of it all. So whether we build the TMX or not, people will consume the same amount of oil. What will happen is somebody else will supply that oil. The global emissions aren't going to be that different. So I think you know, the decision to build this pipeline or not doesn't have much consequence for climate change or global emissions. The federal government has delayed a decision on the pipeline until next month. Will environmentalists force more delays, costing investment in the industry? How many voices does it take to stop a pipeline that's been through every level of regulatory approval? It's just, just it's an amazing thing. Very few people are interested in investing in oil projects right now. And at some level, that's one of the objectives that the folks trying to stymie the industry were looking for. There's been a lot of changes, and I would say a lot of that pressure from society, from environmental groups, has created this transformation of the oil sands to be lower carbon. But will these changes be enough to greenlight a pipeline expansion? For towns like Rocky Mountain House, there's a lot on the line. I don't know what the future holds, but we'll see. I think it almost hurts us on a personal level to see the vilification of the industry in media and across the country. Good morning from Calgary. It's Sunday, May 5th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. Oil and pipelines. Here in Alberta, the stakes couldn't be any higher. The federal government has delayed its decision on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project until next month. But could that be delayed until after the election? And what would that mean for Alberta? Joining me now from Toronto, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Welcome to the show, Premier. Great to be here, Mercedes. You've been out there visiting with Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford, but of course the big news on Friday, the court decision from the Saskatchewan court over the carbon tax, finding it to in fact be constitutional. Now I know Premier Mo says he's going to appeal that all the way to the Supreme Court. What will you do if the Supreme Court upholds that decision? Well, first of all, it was a very narrow decision, three to two on narrow grounds. Uh, and secondly, the Ontario Appeal Court has not yet 
rendered its judgment on a similar reference. Thirdly, the facts are different in Alberta because unlike Saskatchewan, we're bringing forward a levy on major emitters that will occupy the regulatory space on uh, carbon pricing. Um, and uh, finally, I've always known, win, lose, or draw, this was going to go to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, ultimately though, Canadian voters will pass judgment on the uh, job-killing uh, cash grab called the carbon tax at the polls this October. And so ultimately, there will be an opportunity for Canadians to say that they don't want uh, busybody politicians telling them how to live their lives and taking more money out of their pockets. But if the Supreme Court says that this is constitutional, do you have any other recourse? We are going to con re review the uh, Saskatchewan decision carefully and decide whether or not we launch our own uh, Alberta uh, appeal court reference based on the different facts that apply in Alberta, including our major emitters levy. Um, but the ultimate uh, appeal is to the people of Canada in this coming federal election. And every time the carbon tax has been on the ballot in, in a Canadian election, it has been defeated. Mercedes, we're going to listen to the, at least the people of Alberta and I think the people of Canada who have had enough with higher taxes. You've also promised two other pretty significant potential court challenges, one on the tanker ban and one on the bill around uh, building new pipelines. How long do you think those court challenges are going to take, though? It seems like you could eat up a lot of time fighting legal battles. Well, that's why our first uh, effort is to make the point politically. That's why on my uh, second full day as Premier, I went to Ottawa to carry the message about uh, how devastating the no more pipelines law will be if it's passed into law. It's why on my first day as Premier, I went to a Senate panel to uh, say, please don't impose a, a discriminatory ban on the export of Alberta oil off our uh, uh, northwest coast. Um, and I hope that the Senate listens to us. I made this point as well uh, on uh, Wednesday uh, in my, sorry, Thursday in my meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, you know, uh, Mercedes, there is a crisis of investor confidence in Canada. The Bank of Canada says our economy is barely growing, may only grow by 1% next year. A lot of this is because of the huge uh, uh, damage done to our job-creating energy industry. These Trudeau policies are going to uh, do even more damage, kill even more jobs should they proceed. That's why we're starting with the political effort. Again, these will also be on the ballot this October in the federal election. And I think Canadians are hopefully going to vote for jobs and growth rather than policies that kill jobs. One of the things that you raised when you were in Ottawa was national unity, saying that this could potentially pose a threat to it. Albertans are so frustrated and so angry. What was the Prime Minister's response to that? Uh, well, I, I'm, I, he said he understands that there is real anxiety in, in Alberta, and he takes it seriously. I'm glad to hear that from him because there was a recent Angus Reid poll which indicated as uh, up to 50% of Albertans expressed uh, support for secession. We've never seen it that high, and we've, but we certainly do. And some of that might just be people blowing off steam, Mercedes. And let me be clear, I'm a federalist, but I was elected by Albertans as a federalist with a plan to fight for a fair deal for Alberta in the Federation. All Albertans are asking for is this. If the rest of Canada wants to benefit from the wealth generated from Alberta resources, then all we ask is the ability to get those resources to global markets, to get a fair price for them, so we can actually generate the wealth that is transferred across the country, that pays for health care schools and hospitals. And that's the message I sent to the Prime Minister. I certainly hope that he listens. Do you worry, though, that being the leader who's bringing up national unity and putting that back on the agenda, it could trigger a wider crisis? 
Uh, Mercedes, I didn't put, I didn't create this uh, challenge to national unity. The federal government did, Mr. Trudeau's government did, when it came to office, killed the Northern Gateway Pipeline, imposed a tanker ban only on Alberta uh, product, Alberta bitumen, killed the Energy East Pipeline and the dream of energy independence in Canada, surrendered to Obama's veto on Keystone XL that cost us years, surrendered to the obstructionism from the BC New Democrats on Trans Mountain, uh, and, and is now bringing in laws, C-48, C-69, that, that kick us while we're down in Alberta. So all we're asking for, we're not asking for special treatment, just fair treatment so we can get a fair price for the resources that pay a lot of the bills in the Canadian Federation. My point to the Prime Minister is his number one responsibility is national unity. The number two responsibility is prosperity, but his policies are damaging both right now. There's been so much struggle in Alberta, and we've been out here talking to people all week about it. And there's concern from many who work in the oil industry that even if they get this pipeline, if they get Trans Mountain, even if you manage to overturn or stop the tanker ban from happening uh, and change the bill on building pipelines, that the capital has already fled. It's gone to the United States, the oil business is booming there, and that it's simply not going to come back here. Is there a possibility that it's simply too late for the oil industry in Alberta? Well, I don't want to entertain that possibility. I'm an optimist. I believe in the promise of Alberta and of Canada, and that's why we are going to do every... I was elected on a mandate to be obsessed about job creation. That's why uh, we ran on a platform to restore investor confidence. That's why I'm here on Bay Street uh, to send a message that Alberta is open for business again. We will have the lowest business taxes in Canada, almost the very lowest in North America. We're going to cut taxes on employers by one third. We're, I, I was on Bay Street on my f fourth day as Premier saying, Think about moving your operations to Alberta to benefit from those low taxes, from the Alberta advantage. We're going to cut red tape by one-third. We're going to regulate time limits on regulatory approval. We're going to move from being one of the most overregulated and slowest moving to, what, to one of the freest and fastest moving economies in Canada. And then I'm going to go around the world and spread that, that message of investor confidence. So if we do those things and get a pipeline built, I really do believe that much of that investment will come back to Alberta, partly because we produce energy at the the highest human rights, labor, and environmental standards on earth. One last question, yes or no? Do you believe the Trans Mountain Pipeline will be built? Yes. Thank you very much, Premier Kenny. Thank you, Mercedes. Threats to turn off the oil taps and withhold funds from the rest of the country, plus a pushback from BC. Many here in Alberta are feeling disconnected from the rest of the country. I sat down with political analyst Barry Cooper, who is a professor at the University of Calgary, to talk about those issues. Here's that conversation. Welcome to the show, Barry. Good to be here. Uh, I, we worked closely together. You were my thesis advisor. Full disclosure, you had to suffer through that pain. But your area of expertise as well is provincial politics, Western alienation, federal-provincial relations, all these things that we're talking about when it comes to what's happening in Alberta right now. As someone who's watched the issue of Western alienation for decades, how would you describe the current mood in the province? I'd start with an environics poll in March that uh, said 57% of Albertans and Saskatchewanians uh, agreed with the uh, proposition that we get so little from being part of Canada that we may as well go on our own. And I don't think it's been that high, even uh, during the glory days of the National Energy Program. Um, and the reason is something like what in the Declaration of Independence 
called the long train of abuses that the uh, colonists in, in uh, New England and, and the Central Atlantic states uh, delivered to the British, you know, back in the day. And there's been a long train of abuses uh, on Western Canada. And it's not, it's not alienation. That's what uh, Laurentian Canadians uh, uh, project as a kind of psychological problem uh, that, that uh, Westerners have. Uh, they understand perfectly well that their interests are not being looked after by the government of Canada. It's as simple as that. Do you think then, based on when you use things like the Declaration of Independence, the discussions around separation are a serious threat? They're absolutely a serious threat. Uh, or a, a glorious opportunity, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, I don't think that the government of Canada is going to do anything that is are in the interests of, of Western Canada, certainly not the resource-producing parts, which is going to make things worse. What the Alberta and Saskatchewan governments do um, is really hard to say. I, personally, I don't think that there are very many separatists uh, in either of them. There are a lot of separatists in Alberta, um, but I, I think that the, most of the government people are not, or they're not there yet. Uh, but another five years of, of uh, uh, having your interests ignored and having the government of Canada work against your interests, uh, we'll probably get somebody, a premier here or next door, uh, who will be very explicit on, on getting out of this country. Now, the Liberals federally say, look, we spent $4 billion on a pipeline. Why does anyone in Alberta believe we're not protecting their interests. What's the Alberta response to that? The Alberta response is they bought the pipeline in order to be able to say who gets to use it, which is to say they own it, not us, not Albertans. If they wanted to sell it to us, uh, that would be that would be great. As long as we also had extraterritorial uh, jurisdiction over the over the pipeline corridor, but we don't. That is another problem for a lot of the guys in the oil patch. They probably won't admit it, but you know, they'll admit it to me, they may not admit it to you. Uh, they thought that, that when the government of Canada bought Kinder Morgan or Trans Mountain, um, that was another way of blocking, just like the tanker ban, of, blank, uh, of blocking export of uh, petroleum from this province. So they think they're just not going to build it? I, uh, I would bet you, you know, whatever you wanted, they're not going to build it. They have no interest in building it. Uh, they, uh, the view in Ottawa, so far as I can tell, uh, is that Alberta is uh, an antagonist. It's not a regular province in this country. Uh, they thwart, you know, what their vision of the country looks like. Uh, and you know, I mean, I've explained that I don't know how many times in things that I've written, and it always runs into resistance uh, in Laurentian Canada, which is fine. It simply proves my point uh, that we are not really part of the same country. And, and so far as um, the, let's say the Laurentian elites are concerned, we are in the same place as we were in the 19th century, uh, namely a, a kind of quasi-colony. And that's our place. And, uh, and we've been living with that for four or five generations. And uh, eventually, people will say no, and, and then uh, there will be a, a serious separatism here. Alberta also has to deal with other provinces, though, that it's having run-ins with, like British Columbia or Quebec, who are saying they don't want the Alberta pipeline. 
and Albertans are asserting, look, we have provincial rights. How do you deal, though, with another province then that has the same provincial rights and is saying, no, not interested? Well, um, Quebec is a kind of special case, uh, partly because it's so important to the current government, um, but also because of, of the connection between uh, major corporations that have been in the news lately and the Saudis. Uh, so bringing Saudi oil into uh, Quebec refineries uh, is the way, again, Albertan uh, oil guys look at it is it's just payoff. Of course, they want, the Saudis want uh, Western oil living uh, only out here and not being moved so it can be refined uh, in Quebec. I mean, some of it is, but not, not nearly as much as could be. It, we, could, we could replace all of those Saudi tankers uh, on the, coming up the St. Lawrence, um, but that's not going to happen. Not so long ago, there was a conservative government, Stephen Harper at the helm, uh, one of the authors of the firewall. Alberta seemed more content then. Do you think it's just who's in Ottawa right now, or is it really coming from the struggle that oil and gas are facing? I think it's both. Um, people here were happier with Stephen than they are with Justin, that's for sure. Uh, and the reason is that that Harper had a vision of federalism where you pretty much left the provinces alone. That included Quebec. This government it does not have a vision of leaving Alberta alone. Uh, the carbon tax is an attack on Alberta. The tanker ban is an attack on Alberta. Um, and Albertans understand that. They're not our friends. At least with the, you can be disappointed uh, with um, with the Conservative government, uh, and a lot of people were, uh, but they didn't see them as, as the enemy. Uh, with this guy, it's, he's the enemy, and uh, it's, it's quite different. It's quite different. Than, than in, indifference is much to be preferred than uh, an aggressive attack on your uh, economic base. I think some people in the rest of Canada wonder, why does Alberta feel attacked? They're saying, look, it's the environment, it's international prices that have dropped oil. Why does Alberta believe that this is sinister, that it's deliberate? Because people in the other part of Canada may not see that perspective. Uh, when 8,000 jobs was a big deal with Lavalin and 100 and some odd thousand jobs was not a big deal in Alberta, uh, that is prima facie evidence that uh, Ottawa could care less about, what, 10 times as many jobs here. The tanker ban. Uh, the end of, of uh, Northern Gateway. Uh, the government of Canada, and uh, this goes back to, to uh, the Harper government as well, they could have done so much more to push that through. Uh, the government of Canada today, the Liberal government, not only has no interest in doing it, I think you know, Stephen's government was not as aggressive as it should have been. These guys are against it, period. And it's not, it's not gonna happen. Uh, unless we can do some, uh, make it worth their while to get their attention. Uh, and I think that's probably what's behind um, <laughs> sure. uh, the, current, the current government uh, is against any further development. And the only way we can get their attention is to do something 
uh, like reopen uh, the equalization formula and say we're not we're going to collect all our own taxes. Okay, but you're a political scientist. How does that work? Because you're paying equalization out of your individual federal income taxes. So I understand the, the concept of having a referendum and getting people to vote, but in reality, how would you possibly execute that? You used uh, the, um, the Quebec uh, separa separation uh, Supreme Court decision. A clear, uh, clear question with a clear majority compels the government of Canada to negotiate uh, in this, I think it's what, Section 35? Uh, in the uh, 1982 Constitution. And, and then you say, when they are compelled to negotiate, then you start the negotiations on uh, whatever is going to go into, um, uh, into redistribution. If that doesn't work, if, if the government of Canada refuses to negotiate, then you have another referendum. And that referendum will be on separation. That's how you do it. Jason Kenney has made a lot of big promises. He was elected with a clear majority. Do you think he can deliver what Albertans want, or is it beyond a premier's grasp? Uh, if he doesn't deliver, then we will have a real constitutional crisis, but because he's going to try and deliver. And if he's unable to do it, it will be because he is thwarted by the rest of the country, or the, the, by Laurentian Canada, uh, and, and these uh, people in British Columbia. And if, if that happens, then uh, that will change the political landscape enormously. Do you believe that Alberta could really make it if Absolutely. it's separated? Because Absolutely. there's people who say that that's, it's just an empty threat. Most Albertans do not want that or believe that it's possible. It's not economically feasible, especially with the state that oil's in right now. And how would you get the oil out? Uh, the, if you actually look at the numbers, uh, we would be so much better off by, by ourselves. So we, we have friends uh, starting at the Montana border. Uh, there's, you could uh, ship, pipe, uh, ship oil through pipe through the United States. Uh, there, are all, there are all kinds of ways. I mean, there, there are people who thought about this a lot more than I have and, have, and are much more quantitative. And in uh, Berkison and I did a, a kind of fantasy piece uh, for McLean's uh, two or three weeks ago. And it was, it was fantasy, but it's, it's also feasible. And uh, I mean, politics is always filled with surprises. It's it, because if humans can act, you know, they can take initiatives that are completely unforeseen. And I think that this is what Jason has, has started doing. And he's changed, already he's changed the dynamic of Canadian politics. Uh, how Canada responds to that will uh, result in his his next sort of his next steps, and who you know who can anticipate what they would be? Not you know not me, not you, not anybody. Partly because it de depends on how in this case the, the between now and the next election how the Liberals behave, because he will respond. Mark my words, mark my words, uh, and in a in a way that is in the interests of the people who elected him. Some people look at Alberta and they think problem child, others think golden child. What makes Alberta different in the Confederation? Well, there's a Corb Lund song, <laughs> east of the mountains, west of the rest. And a lot of it is, is uh, settlement. Uh, the settlement in Alberta 
and in Saskatchewan, but more so here, uh, is different than uh, other, other parts of the country, including British Columbia. Um, the literature is different here. It's much more uh, comic rather than tragic. I mean, you, you can certainly tell the difference between Aretha Van Herc and, and Margaret Atwood. Uh, and the way that Albertans see their future uh, is much different than the anxieties of, of Laurentian Canada. I mean, I, I kept telling uh, people, uh, you know, years ago that uh, Quebec and Ontario are populated by people who believe in a loser's myth. Uh, and the loser's myth with Quebec, the French were beaten by the Brits. With Ontario, the Patriots uh, beat the Loyalists and, and, and so on. The thing about a loser's myth is it's not whether you really are a loser. I'm not talking like Trump. Uh, but the myth is that it gives you moral superiority. And in the case of, of both of Ontario and Quebec, uh, their moral superiority is to us. Uh, they think of us as kind of like Americans. And everybody knows if you're morally superior to the Americans, uh, they're to be disdained. That's why, uh, you know, Albertans uh, have this problem elsewhere in the, in the country. I mean, I've, I've had students who've gone to law school and in, uh, well, Dal and, and uh, Osgood and, and things like that. And their law professors will say, well, give us the view from Calgary. You know, as if, give us the view from the dark side of the moon. And that kind of disdain is noticed. Uh, and <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, we are as, as uh, certainly as well-educated and as affluent as uh, as these uh, poobahs in, in uh, Toronto. Um, but that's still there, and that's the reflection of the myth, and that's not going to go away. I mean, that's why uh, I don't think there's going to be much movement by the government of Canada to assist uh, this province, which will make things worse. One last question. With this bubbling anger in Alberta and the frustration that you're describing building, are you worried about other elements that can exploit that when we start to hear about concerns about rising white nationalism uh, or white supremacists, people who are trying to get in and really use that anger? How do you deal with that? I don't think it's anger. Uh, it's it's a, a, an acknowledgement, and therefore I don't think that, that, uh, that the uh, white nationalists and all these other you know, wackos are, are going to have any significance. Um, I think it's an acknowledgement that we have interests that are separate from the rest of the country, that particularly Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, have interests that are, are much different, certainly much different than Quebec, much different than, than Ontario, and a lot different than, than British Columbia. Uh, and, and, you know, quite frankly, we don't think much about Atlantic Canada, uh, except for Newfoundland. Newfoundland has interests that are very similar uh, to ours. That's why there's so many uh, Newfoundlanders in, in uh, Fort McMurray. And so, you know, I, I think it's about interests. I don't think it's about emotions. I think the emotions are what, what come to the surface when your interests are uh, not acknowledged uh, and the differences are not acknowledged. You know, when people say, what's the matter with you? And you say, there's nothing the matter with me. What's the matter with you? Then you get this emotional uh, confrontation. Barry, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. 
There is division in the Indigenous community over whether the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project should go ahead. So we sat down with both sides of that debate to hear from them in their own words. Kukpi Judy Wilson, Skachin Te Sequapam, Sequapam Ulu, Chief from the Skalnet Indian Band from the Shishwap Nation in the interior of British Columbia. The Sequapam Nation is a diverse and geographic area. It's one of the largest nations in the interior of British Columbia. We uh, have 180, 100,000 square kilometers that are unceded, unsurrendered, unsold, unrelinquished in every shape and way. Uh, we've not given up the proper title holders, the people of our nation have not given up the title to the government or the province or any, any band or any uh, tribal council or any organization. So the land is still uh, held under collective title of our Sequapan people. And in, I think, I believe it was 1951 or 53, around that stretch, they put in the uh, pipeline that crosses our territory, about 513 kilometers of our territory, without the people's consent. And there's still issues with that pipeline today. Uh, because as you know, we have uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Indigenous Rights of Indigenous people and uh, they have not given their free prior informed consent to the existing pipeline uh, nor the uh, one that Kinder Morgan was trying to put through nor the uh, one Trudeau who owns the uh, uh, the Trans Mountain pipeline so our people have not given consent and there's many nations uh, um, most of BC uh, the province itself uh, the entire lower mainland, uh, right from Victoria to Vancouver to Burnaby and the lower uh, areas with the municipalities uh, are all opposing the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. And that's about uh, three, four or five million people. So as long as there's one nation saying no to the pipeline, uh, it cannot be built. Uh, and there's been no uh, consult proper consultation and what I mean by that is it's uh, bypassed our our people our indigenous people who hold that collective title it's not the bands that hold the title and it's not the chief and councils that hold the title it's our collective titles held by our people and our people still have not been a been properly uh, consulted and uh, we just released an open letter a couple of weeks ago in regard to uh, information for any uh, potential investors into the pipeline outlining the many concerns in regard to, to this uh, proposed uh, twinning and uh, there's some really serious issues in the uh, financial uh, uh, risks. There's no sustainable long-term uh, returns and there's uh, high risk and uncertainty with that project. And the environment uh, speaks for itself, you know, on, on the many issues uh, outlined in, in regard to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. But most importantly, our people do not want to be displaced off our land. Uh, we do have constitutional rights. We also have our inherent rights. And we also have the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. My name is Stephen Buffalo. I'm the President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council of Canada. Uh, the Indian Resource Council was a advocacy organization which started back in the early 80s uh, and, it, and it represented the uh, First Nation oil and gas producers. Uh, it works closely with the federal government, the Indian Oil and Gas Canada and uh, our, our people 
our members, which is approximately about 134 members, have been active in the oil and gas industry since that uh, for, for many, many years. Our interest has been definitely uh, looking at uh, equity ownership of Trans Mountain uh, for the reason that our, our oil and gas producing nations definitely need uh, access with, with better price points. The price differential with limited market access is definitely starting to hurt our communities. You know, our, our communities uh, utilize this resource of oil and gas um, to help subsidize the lack of federal funding that we, re we receive under the Indian Act. How we get out of poverty, how we f address those social issues in our communities is, is looking at investments such as this, this uh, infrastructure. So when the federal government purchased the TMX, it, it presented an opportunity, a door for our, our, our First Nations to look at possibly owning the pipeline. Our communities are growing, our, our populations are growing, and we're seeing more and more of our people coming to the major centers. It's because there, there's nothing back home. Uh, and, and with this oil and gas industry, it really subsidizes where things fall short. And, and it's, it's, it's not without saying that, you know, we, we, we aren't do, do, doing our proper due diligence with money. It, it's the fact that we require this stuff. We require social programs. We require further education. Uh, we, re we require adequate housing and cleaner water. And I'm very confident that, you know, with, with the Prime Minister saying no relationship greater means more to him than anything else, you know, uh, I'm very confident he won't renege on that statement. And you know, this is an opportunity for First Nations to really take uh, this opportunity to, to be part of this. It's the fact that we need to find balance. We need to find balance between economic development and environmental conservation. You look around this area, you look at the water, you know, that that's paramount for First Nations and that's for everyone. But in the same sense, we can't continue to live in the conditions that our communities are in. You know, it's it's sometimes it's unfair. We have the haves and the have nots. We have casino development, we have tobacco development and, you know, it, it's, and then there's a ton of communities that don't have that type of economic opportunity or economic development. So having this type of infrastructure and this opportunity and finding that balance between economic development and protecting the environment is paramount. But the only way we can do that is if First Nations and our, our people are allowed at these tables when they create regulation, when they create policy, when they, when they create legislation so that, you know, we have input develop a new trend that First Nations have consultation and are at the table when they make these decisions, I think things will move jointly together and, and in a positive way. But until then, yeah, we, we, uh, we have issues and then we'll continue to work with whoever wants to work that we can find a solution for this pipeline. Thanks for checking out the West Block Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.